sermon passage today begins in Exodus chapter 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you who were sojourners in the land of Egypt, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to, the, to, eat, to do evil, you shall, uh, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent with righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bill. Let's pray together. To our eternal and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who is both just and good, we shout for joy and we give thanks to you because your word is upright, because all of your work is done in faithfulness, because you love righteousness and justice, and because the earth is full of your steadfast love. We look around and we acknowledge that by your word the heavens were made, you spoke and it came to be. You commanded and it stood firm and we stand in awe of you. As we do, our souls wait for you, our help and our shield. Our hearts are glad in you and we trust in your holy name. We ask that you let your steadfast love be on us even as we hope in you. For you are great and greatly to be praised. 
Father, as high and great and holy as you are, we are not. Apart from you, we are dead in our sin, desperately wicked and utterly without hope. We are prone to forget you, to seek after our own benefit to the neglect of others, and to cherish our comfort far more than obedience to you. When you bless us, we are ungrateful. And yet, your word tells us that because of what you have done for us in and through your son, Jesus, you will forgive our iniquity. You will heal our diseases and redeem our lives from the pit. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You do not deal with us according to our sins or repay us for our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, great is your steadfast love toward those who fear you. And as far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us. You show compassion to us as your children. You know our frames and you remember that we are dust. How exceedingly grateful we are that you did not leave us to our own devices, to our own wickedness, but that you redeemed us. This morning, we grieve that we live in a sin-sick world. There are so many who are hurting, who are oppressed, who are needy and afflicted, and it is on their behalf to you we plead. Your word tells us that you will maintain the cause of the afflicted. You will execute justice for the needy. You work righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. For all those this morning who are suffering for the sake of your name, would you be their defender and their vindicator? For those who are experiencing injustice because this is a fallen world filled with sinful people, would you, O oh God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted, hear their desire, strengthen their heart, incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Forgive us when we are the cause of such affliction and sustain us when we are the recipients of it. Now, as we open your word, would you open our hearts to receive it? Would you use it as a refining fire in our lives to purify us from all iniquity? Help us to see in and through it that you are good, you are just, you are holy. Use it to bring dead hearts to life this morning and to save those who are perishing. Give us ears to hear as we have never heard before. May every word that comes from my mouth be of you. And if it is not, then silence me where I stand. Father, we need you. And it is in the great name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask, that we plead for these things. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you. My name is Austin Shaver, and I am also one of the pastors here at Redeemer. If you have not already done so, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Exodus. If this is your first time at Redeemer or your first time back in a while, let me say especially welcome to you. We are continuing our study of and working our way through the book of Exodus. And we have come to the point in the book where God is giving and explaining his law to his people. Now, let me acknowledge right up front, if this is your first time here, and you just heard Bill read that passage, it is okay if some part of you is thinking, well, that was weird, because it is kind of weird, and that's all right. But Jamie has shared this each week, and I fully affirm it, that we absolutely believe 
that every last word of Scripture is divinely inspired, that it's without error, and that it is given to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us for righteousness, and to equip us for every good work that God has for us. And so it is with this morning's passage. But by way of quick review, let's remind ourselves what has brought us to this moment. Because the book of Exodus opens with finding God's people having been in captivity in Egypt for 430 years. Then God shows up in miraculous, powerful ways to deliver them. He defeats Pharaoh and his hosts. He acts in such a way to show his power over Egypt's false gods, and he brings them out, and he's bringing them toward the land that he promised to them generations ago. But as he is doing this, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And in the last several chapters, God has been fleshing out what these mean for his people. So in the last several weeks, we have seen God lay out and explain how his people ought to relate to him. We've seen how they ought to treat those who are their servants or who are otherwise of what they would consider a lower social class than them. We have seen how they ought to be a people who honor life. And we have seen how they ought to go about righting any wrongs that they have committed. And so we find ourselves where we are today. And as I said, because we believe that every last word of Scripture is for our good, then we want to take the time to work through and wrestle with what what is God saying here? What does this mean for his people? And what are its implications for us? As we get ready to do this, let me ask you a question. How many of you this morning either have children or have ever been a child? I need to see every hand because if not, we have a conversation to have later. Okay, so this means you have either heard or used the phrase, that's not fair, right? We've all been there. My wife and I have four kids. As you can imagine, we hear this with some frequency in our household. And my current stock phrase has been, you're right, sweet child of mine. It is not fair. A fair is a place you go and there are no Ferris wheels in sight As you can imagine, they're very persuaded by this unassailable logic. So you can take that home as a free parenting line today. I'm sure your kids will find it just as helpful. But, you know, we laugh. But underneath that, there can be a serious claim. Sometimes, yes, we're we're just whining because things didn't go our way. But sometimes it is the cry of the heart saying, not only is this not fair, but this situation, this moment in life is not just. It is not right. So the question before us then is, should we be okay with those moments with those situations. And I think the indisputable answer of Scripture here is no. No, rather it shows us that God is greatly concerned that his people, that their lives and their communities be fair, or or more accurately, more fully, that we be deeply marked and shaped by justice. So much so that it affects every area of our lives together. In fact, take a look at your Bibles. If you've got a physical Bible, a digital, whatever's in front of you, look at it. Look right above chapter 22, verse 16. Unless you have the King James Version, you're going to see a section heading there. And depending on which translation you have, it may say something a little bit different. So if you have the ESV, you know, the extra spiritual version, it's called Laws About Social Justice. If you have the NASB, uh, the Nerdy and Serious Bible, it's called Social responsibility. I I could do this all day, by the way. I'm feeling strong dad joke energy this morning. Um, If you've got the NIV, the nearly inspired version, it's the more prosaic various laws. The CSB, the cool Southern Baptist Bible, I'm not stopping. I'm just going to keep going. 
then there are a couple of headings, but one of them is laws protecting the vulnerable. And just to be clear, these headings, they're not part of inspired scripture. God didn't put them there. They came later from editors and publishers trying to help organize things a little bit. And I'm, I'm very well aware that the ESV's phrasing, social justice, that's a phrase that is very freighted in our current cultural moment. Regardless of how you feel about that as a philosophy of governance, as a political concept, I do think it accurately captures a lot of the heart and spirit of this passage, which is the main point of this morning's sermon, and that's this. God is a God of justice, and in our lives and in our communities, we also must be just. And I say both in our lives and in our communities, because I think the clear testimony of all of Scripture is that God did not create nor save us to be these hyper-atomized, siloed individuals who never interact with, care for, relate to one another. Rather, he made us relational creatures. And in saving us, he formed us into a community, into a covenant community, and he placed us into any number of other communities, whether where you physically live, where you work, where you play, all of these things. And he reminds us in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan that we don't get to ignore our obligations to others. And that's where I think we're going to be pressed by this passage this morning. Because in 21st century America, and I know that not everyone here was born in or raised in the U.S. necessarily, but, but in general, we're very comfortable with the language of our rights, of demanding our rights. But we get much, much less comfortable when someone starts talking about our duties and our responsibilities and our obligations. And I very, very much include myself in that. But you know what? Even if so, we need to get prepared to be uncomfortable because today's passage makes very clear that far from demanding our rights, God's expectation of us is that we would fulfill our obligations to our neighbors, to our communities, and yes, very much so to our enemies. Perhaps even more importantly, he does this because these commands reflect his character. And if nothing else, we ought always to seek to more closely reflect the character of our God. So let's look at the text together that we might better know the character of God and encourage one another to these ends. And that brings us to our first point, which is going to be about 90% of the sermon, by the way, so hang with me. But it's called Good Laws. Good laws. And I said at the outset that we have to remember the context in which these commands are given, and we do, because God has given many of these commands to help undo the negative influence of Egypt. They're seven weeks removed from Egypt, where they've been for 400 years. That's going to take some time. But depending on how you divide them, there are about 27 separate commands in this passage. And as excited as I'm sure you'd be to hear a 27-point, one-minute-each sermon, we just don't have time to do that. Um, But God gives these commands not only to undo Egypt's influence, but also because as much as we might want to think otherwise, in our sinful, fallen state, it is just not our natural inclination to do the right thing. That is not the bent of humanity ever. So this morning, rather than trying to go through and dig into each one, and if you've got questions on any of them, grab me after, send me an email. We can talk through it for as long as you want. But I want us to zoom out just a little because I think we can see several threads running throughout this passage that are going to help us both understand better the character of who God is and his expectations for his people. So let's take the time to do that. First, first thread, look back at verses 16 and 17 with me. 
I'm mindful of the age range present here this morning, so I'm going to assume we all understand what's being talked about here. But it says that if a man behaves this way toward a woman to whom he is not betrothed, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to that bride price. Now, Jamie covered a lot of this ground back in his sermon on March 14th, and I would encourage you to go and listen to it. But briefly, the idea here is that a woman who has been treated wrongly is due justice by the man who has wronged her. And I recognize that as we read this, we're going to be reading it a lot through our modern lens and our modern understanding of of things like independence and consent and relations between men and women and all those things. And, And those are not inherently wrong, but it can kind of obscure our ability to see exactly how justice is being done here because you read this and it still doesn't sound very great, right? There, there's a lot of cultural things happening here. But, but the idea, the, the heartbeat behind it is that no man is entitled to use a woman how he sees fit and then just discard her. Rather, if he has done so, at a minimum, he must at least seek to make her and her family financially whole. And now the idea there is not that you can reduce the value of a woman down to a dollar figure, but that contrary to their culture, she did still have value after this moment. That was very, very different from what prevailed in their day and in their surroundings. And it also acknowledges what we might think of as the more consensual element by giving her and her family the final say in whether or not a marriage resulted. It didn't automatically mean you're stuck with this terrible person forever, but it does mean that regardless of whether a marriage results, the one who has done wrong may not escape at least some responsibility for his action. So we see here both that those who are in less powerful positions in their society must be treated with dignity and respect, and those who are in the positions of greater power must take responsibility for their actions. God help that we would have such a mindset today. And further, it's a good reminder for all of us that the marriage relationship, including in its physical aspects, should not be regarded in a light, trivial manner. This is an important relationship. It is a covenantal relationship. So that's the first thread that we see. Second, we see in verses 18 through 20, seemingly three unrelated commands. These feel a little bit random, but they do share the common factor of all of them carry the death penalty. So that's a big deal. We might want to find out what's going on there. And I think the common theme is that in each of them, we see that in some way, the action described would either directly attack or at least directly undermine the people's trust in God's power and God's goodness. What do I mean? Well, consider this. In verse 18, it refers to putting to death a practitioner of black magic or the dark arts, meaning someone who seeks powers from the spiritual world apart from God. So seeking power from and placing their hope in some spiritual source other than him. Now, does this mean we all need to run home right after this, get our copies of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and Wizard of Oz and burn them? Yes. Yes, we do. No, no, please don't do that. All those books are on our shelves. They're well-worn from reading. But it does mean we ought to flee from occultic practices. We ought to resist anything where we would seek to place our hope in and seek power from other than God himself. God takes that very seriously. You see it again in verse 19 when it describes an act Having just described the importance of the marriage relationship, now it describes something so far beyond 
what God has created for marriage that so transgresses that command that it's essentially saying, what you have done, God, is not good. And so it's taking that most, that most important human relationship and absolutely tearing it asunder. And then third, in verse 20, God really gets to the heart of the matter because as he has told the people of Israel over and over and over again, all that he has done for him is premised on the fact that he is their God. He is the one who has delivered him, and there is no other. So all of these commands are getting the fact that that truth, that truth must remain central in your lives. So, so what do we do with that? You know, do we go home? Do we grab our pitchforks and torches and burn the witches? Do we get Monty Python with us to figure out who the witches are and, and go burn them? No, no, because you see, unlike Israel, the big C church, the body of Christ, has not been constituted by God as a theocratic nation state that gets to bear the power of the sword. No, he, he makes very clear, we do not get to kill people. If you get nothing else today, please take that one home. We don't get to go kill people. There is a reason that Jesus told Peter, put away your sword when he was in the garden. There is a reason that Jesus told Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my men would have been fighting, but it's not, and we're not. You see, we don't get to spread the gospel. We don't get to point people to Jesus at the tip of the spear or the muzzle of the gun, as it were. Now, what, now what God did do, he did give the church the power of the keys to excommunicate when necessary, but the point for us is we must take great care to resist putting anything in God's rightful place, in our lives, in our communities. So that's the second thread. The third thread that we see runs through verses 21 through 27, and it centers on love of neighbor, particularly those who are in positions of significant disadvantage, of weakness, of vulnerability. And as we get into this section, it is of utmost importance that we see the framing of it in verse 21. Look at what it says. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Your God goes straight for the gut here, and he reminds the people, hey, hey, all this that I am commanding you to do, remember, this was you. You were in these positions. So as you look through these commands, there are a couple of things we need to clarify. First, you see terms like sojourner and widow and fatherless child, orphan, the poor, uh, depending on your translation, maybe resident alien, all these things. And, and those words mean exactly what they say, but they're also more than that. Because the point of these commands is not to legalistically narrow it down to as few people as possible. Rather, we should read into it, as commentator Doug Stewart describes it, anyone who is unprotected. These are meant to be very broad commands, not narrow. And relatedly, when God commands them not to wrong or mistreat them, again, that is meant to be a very broad term encompassing any sort of misuse or unfair treatment. Essentially, if you're approaching this with the mindset of how much can I get away with, how few people can I apply this to, instead of thinking how much can I obey this, to how many people can I show this love, then friend, your heart and my heart are oriented wrongly if that is our approach. We should seek to interpret this as broadly as we can to show this kind of love to people. So, so what does this reveal to us about the character of God? 
I think two things at least. First, God abhors, and I mean he absolutely abominates ingratitude and hypocrisy. Because he is telling them in no uncertain terms that they must not forget. Just seven weeks ago, this was you, and you were in this exact same position. How dare you now turn your back on those who find themselves in the same way? He's promised them that he would provide for them. How could they possibly withhold doing the same for others? Look at the language that he uses, such as in verse 21. What does he say? He says, if you do mistreat them, my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Friends, that is strong, strong language. And if you read on into places like Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 through 33, you see this elaborated in great detail. And those are what are called the covenant curses. And it's essentially God saying to his people, if you do this, if you behave in this way, if you treat others in this way, then you have so missed the point of what I have done for you. You have so transgressed of what I intend for you that I will utterly wreck you as a nation because you have missed me completely. He takes this very seriously. But the second thing we learn of God's character is as fierce as is his wrath toward those who would oppress and mistreat others, equally fierce is his love and compassion for those who are in need. Because again, look at the language he uses in verses 23 and 27. If they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Friend, if you are in need today, if you are broken and hurting and weak and vulnerable today, if your heart and life are broken over the wrong that has been done to you, then you cry out because the Lord has said, I will hear you, for I am a compassionate God. God's ear is open to your cry today and every day. But why is God so adamant about this? I think it is because he knows. He knows that our hearts are bent toward thinking that, you know what? If me, my four, and no more have gotten ours, then everybody else can kind of fend for themselves. Does that shock us? Do do we want to fight against that? Friend, take care. Guard your heart. Because you know what? It's easy for us to pay lip service to and say, well, of course, God, of course we would care for those who are in these situations. Of course we would love others and provide for them. Of course we wouldn't forget what you have done for us. But you watch. As soon as we discover that doing this will cost us something, as soon as it means laying down our rights, our comforts, our preferences, how quickly do we start looking for any escape hatch we can from having to obey this? Lest we forget, though, it was Jesus who told us in Matthew 25 that whatever we do to the least of these, we do also to him. Oh God, guard our hearts. Help us to not forget. That's the third thread. The fourth thread Verses 28 through 31, and it centers around a respect for God's holiness and his place of primacy in the life of his people. 
And this is again shown in how people speak to and about God and others as well. Look at what it says in verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You know, for such a short little sentence, there's a lot happening there. Now, the use of revile and curse, it captures the idea of, of despising, of holding in contempt, of showing little regard or value for someone, and specifically in the idea of cursing, of invoking harm on them. So in other words, this is strong language. And I think it is interesting that God takes this command and both applies it to how we speak of him and those who are in authority over us. So let's take both of those in turn. As for not reviling God, not speaking ill of him, I think at an intuitive level, we probably get that command. We, we get that idea, but I think it is important because as Luke 6 reminds us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if our words are indicative of our hearts, then what we say about God, how we speak of him, often reveals what we actually think and feel about him. So what does it look like to revile God? Because I'm going to go out on a limb and assume for most of us this morning, our temptation is not to just unleash a string of curses against God. I don't think that's where we're at. But what we might, what we just might be tempted to do is to not think well of him when life gets really hard. What we might be tempted to do is to believe Satan's first lie. Did God really say? You know, when the world tells us that not only are God's ways and his laws wrong, but they are evil and harmful, when doing so, when speaking well of God there, would cost us something, we might just be tempted, if not to outright agree with the world, to at least avoid speaking in such a way as to make clear our disagreement. But friends, God's word and God's ways are good. And we must take care that our words about him never suggest otherwise. He also prohibits cursing a ruler of their people. Now, the use of a ruler rather than the ruler is correct here because it indicates that it applies not just to the people at the very, very top, but all the way down. Anybody that's in authority over them, they must not revile or curse them. Uh-oh. Now we're going to get to meddling because I know and you know that it is an American pastime to revile our, not rulers, we don't have rulers, but our politicians. Let's go there. And I know this because I used to be an elected official. And I'm also four years clean and sober and recovering from being a Facebook warrior for truth and justice and all that is good in the world because there are people wrong on the internet. I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot of wrong people that need to be told what is right. I thought it was my job. It's not. It's also not yours. You can't go fix the internet. But what, what, what do we do with this? Because, because we're called to take captive every thought in obedience to Christ. So what do we do here? Well, first, I think we acknowledge that we cannot skirt this by saying, well, okay, they had it easy because at least their rulers were part of God's people. They're not subject to these heathen pagan politicians like we are. They don't know what it's like for us. Well, okay, maybe. Maybe so. But then we have to grapple with texts and commands like Romans 13 which remind us that all governing authorities are instituted by God. Like 1 Peter 2, which says things like honor the emperor. And 1 Timothy 2, which commands us to pray for kings and those in authority. And lest we forget, those commands were given when those in authority were actively seeking to kill Christians. Is it, is it just possible 
that sometimes our complaints are a little overwrought. But then secondly, you know, does this mean we can never oppose the government, that we can never criticize those who do evil? No, not at all. We must, we must do those things. But it does mean that we should take care in how we speak about those who God has over us. Even Paul, even Paul, in Acts 23, when he recognized that it was the high priest who had ordered one of the guards to punch Paul in the mouth for sharing the gospel, go check that out. When he recognized that's who it was, he realized, oh, this command still applies to me. And he quotes this directly, that I can't revile this man. So yes, let us fight evil and injustice with everything that we have. But in doing so, let's make sure we speak about God and about those in authority over us in a way that reveals that our trust and our hope are ultimately in the Lord. And that no matter how strongly we may oppose someone, we still recognize that they're a human being made in God's image. And to invoke a curse on them is to invoke a curse on the image of God. Friends, that, that ought to weigh very, very heavily on us. And I wonder, mostly to myself here, before, during, after speaking ill of someone God has set in authority over me, have I ever for a moment stopped to pray that God would save them? To pray that he would help them govern as a force for good and not for evil? Because if I haven't, what does that say about where my hope actually lies? That's the fourth thread. The fifth and final we see in these commands is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And there are really two groups of commands here, verses 1 to 3 and 6 to 8, and then 4 to 5 in the middle. So if you, if you read 1 to 3 and 6 to 8 together, and we don't have time to do that, you see that it, it deals a lot with judicial proceedings. But it's not just those, because it recognizes that what we say and what we do can lead to just and unjust situations. But three things that I think we can quickly take away here are first, in verse 1, when it says to not spread a false report or join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness, that's an elaboration of the ninth commandment and not bearing false witness. But it can pretty clearly apply to everything from informal gossip all the way up to you know, under oath types of testimony. But you know what in our own day is, is maybe even more damaging than a lawsuit? That's a social media mob. I'm sure we've all seen the examples of how badly that can go. But not only, So not only should we not gossip in our interpersonal conversations, let us certainly not do so in any online venue where we find ourselves. Because it can be really easy to speak before we actually know what we're talking about. It can be really easy to join the rush of the crowd. And that's what verse 2 is cautioning against, is don't get caught up with the mob, with the many, ready to condemn, some, condemn someone long before we know all of the facts. Again, this is very pernicious in our day when that can be done on a global scale at the speed of light. We, above all people, ought to take seriously the reminder in Proverbs 18, 17, which says that the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Let us always be a people of truth. And the third thing we see, verses 3 and 6, they're interesting in that they prohibit both showing partiality for and against the poor person in a lawsuit. Why both? Why would it speak to both things there? I think because God recognizes we can be tempted in both directions. We might be tempted to show partiality to and side with the rich and the powerful, maybe out of fear of them 
or out of hope of favor from them. But we could also be tempted to side with the poor and show partiality there out of, out of pity and sympathy. Both are wrong. And verses 7 and 8 elaborate on that. Rather, we ought to desire and seek the truth in all situations. Again, Proverbs 17 has a strong rebuke when it reminds us that he who justifies the wicked and who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And then finally, in verses 4 and 5, we come to what I think may be the hardest commands in this whole passage of hard commands. Why? Because it reminds us to go out of our way to help and do good to who? Look at the verses. Your enemy and the one who hates you. We could spend, we could spend all day, maybe our whole lives on this. And there is no getting around it. Jesus himself commanded us in Matthew 5 to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. You know what makes this especially hard? It's what it doesn't say. Because you see, what it doesn't say is, do this if your enemy apologizes to you. It doesn't say, do this if your enemy promises never to commit evil against you again. It doesn't say, do this if the person is kind of your enemy, but not really that bad. Not if they're a really, really bad enemy. No, it says do this when they are your enemy, when they hate you. You love them. You bless them. You pray for them. You do good to them. Why do we do this? Look at verse 9. Because you know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For us, this could just as truly read, you know the heart of a sinner. For you were sinners everywhere that you were. And that brings us to point two, good hearts, with which we'll close. You know, if you come away from this today thinking, all you need to do is work harder and be better, then I have failed utterly in communicating God's message here. Because if you come away today thinking, I could never possibly live up to this, then you're getting closer to the mark. Because here's the reality. At the end of the day, it does not matter how many good laws God gives us. Laws cannot fix our hearts. We need good hearts. And friends, on our own, our hearts are not good. Jeremiah 17 tells us that apart from Jesus, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And that may be the least controversial thing I've said here today, because you know what? All of human history tells us that. How often are we reminded that what we think of as civilization and society, they're very thin veneers, and it takes so little to rip them away. And let's not kid ourselves. It doesn't take us long to get there. You know, our family, we joke often about being hangry, and that's usually a few hours after not eating, but I assure you, you extend that out a couple of days, strip away my other creature comforts, yeah, I'm going to shank you over a can of beans and not think twice about it. <laughs> but but that, that's our heart, right? That, that's where we get you know, it was uh, Russian author and, and Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn who said, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his heart? So not only do we need good hearts, we need new hearts. We need the heart of Jesus. And if you're here and you are not a believer in Jesus, welcome. We are so genuinely glad that you are here but if in this this morning, if, if you see your sin, you see your wickedness, then, then there is hope and there is good, good news because God promises to give us new hearts, 
hearts of living flesh and not of dead stone, hearts on which he will write his laws. You know, earlier we talked about God's fierce, fiery heart for those in need, and that's you. And because of Jesus' work and death on the cross and his resurrection, he promises that if you will repent of your sin and believe in him, he will hear you and he will save you. And if you're here this morning and God has given you that new heart, he has covered you with the blood of Jesus, then there may have been some hard things for you to hear. But I hope, I hope you will see and remember that we do this not because we think we have to do it to earn God's favor. Goodness, no, we couldn't if we wanted to. No, we do this because we know the heart of a sinner. We do this because in God's kingdom, we were the enemy. We were the ones who hated him. And yet he still went out of his way. He still bore our burdens. And he still did good to us. And our lives now, they're not about demanding our rights. No, we are not our own. And because we know that, because we know the heart of a sinner and the heart of a savior, how could we do anything but go and love others as we have been loved? How could we not then obey Galatians 6.10, which says simply this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Let's pray. Father, you are very, very good. And oh, oh, we are not. And you've given us a hard word this morning. And yet I pray for all who have heard it, if they don't know you, that you would give them a new heart and you would save them. For all who do, that you would help us to love as we have been loved and because you first loved us. Be it our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our enemies, those who would actively seek our harm, help us to be you to them. Break our hearts. Help us to do good. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.